Welcome to the Cascadian Prophets Podcast, a production of the Cascadia Poetics Lab, empowering people to practice poetry and deepen connections to place, self, and the present moment. For hundreds of years in the Western world, we have been told or have assumed that indigenous peoples are genetically inferior and, like children, are thus in need of protection. That the protection offered has been the conscious or unconscious attempt at total annihilation is a sidebar for now. The notion that science was at the core of what justified attitudes and laws governing generations of indigenous peoples is important. Science is important because 20th century science is validating what indigenous peoples have been saying for thousands of years. Take Werner Herzenberg, he of the famous uncertainty principle, who suggested that we can never know what nature is like because in order to observe it, we must pin it down and thus change it. Now, an indigenous man, a chief of his people, steeped in the methodologies of his own and the dominant culture, says ancient indigenous modalities may be valid ways to prove what his culture said all along. He says the quality of generosity is actually a law, not that being generous, and that not being generous will kill you. And this can be proven through the indigenous modality of the vision quest. Of course, Richard Atlio prefers the word Usamich, but we'll get into that. Our guest today is Umik, Dr. E. Richard Adlio, hereditary chief of the Ahusat, grandson of Kista, the last of the Ahusat whalers. He's a research affiliate at the University of Manitoba and author of Sawak, a new Chatnulth worldview. It was a delight to hear your presentation today at the Center for World Indigenous Studies and to read your book. And to gain a kind of intimate access to your culture's cosmology that I consider quite an honor and by reading the book and hearing you speak today thank you for that opportunity you're welcome can you tell us about your ancestral homeland the territory of the new Chatnoth people my ancestral home yes um, a place called Ahus from which we we get the modern term Ahuset which actually means uh, people of Ahus but as is usual in initial interactions with uh, newcomers to the land, Ahos became Ahoset uh, through a misunderstanding. <clears throat> so to call a place Ahoset is very much like uh, calling um, a Seattle, Seattleite, uh, a person from Seattle, for example, or Vancouverite as a person from Vancouver, and that becomes the name of the place. Well, so that's what happened to all of our communities. Um, <clears throat> West coast of Vancouver Island, we now call ourselves uh, Nuchanut because uh, uh, that's our own designation uh, of a people that live along the mountains, and that's what the, the name means, people uh, who live along the mountains. I'm not sure how el- what else to say about my ancestral homeland. Well, that uh, uh, Nuchanut was uh, bastardized to be Nutka at one time, is that correct? Nutka is, yes. Uh, when Captain Cook, uh, there's an official uh, literary version of Captain Cook's arrival, and there's the oral version, which, which I will provide. <clears throat> the uh, Nutka, the Muchlet people, the Muachet people who lived in that area, uh, have the story that it was foggy when Captain Cook arrived and that he was lost in the fog. And <clears throat> so they, they said to him, Nutkshi'i, and with probably with a chorus of arms, because Nutkshi'i uh, means to go around the corner or around the point to safe harbor. Uh, 
it doesn't have safe harbor in there, but that's the indication of the word or the phrase, nutkshi. And probably over the ocean waves and wind and so on, nutkshi, it sounded a bit like nutka over a distance. And so we became known as nutka as a result. To get a sense of what part of the world that is, mm. uh, Van, the west part of Vancouver Island n- near Klekwat Sound. Exactly, yes. I understand uh, well, that you are a hereditary chief, and um, I'm wondering, you don't live in your ancestral homeland, and yet you're a hereditary chief. So can you tell us about your responsibilities as chief? Uh, yes. <clears throat> the contemporary um, hereditary chief um, is a person that, uh, as, as the term suggests, uh, descends from a line of people who were, were hereditary leaders within the community and uh, had, had a, a sp- very specific and heavy responsibilities to the land, to resources, to the people, and to manage the reality that, as they perceived it uh, in an attempt to find a way to balance the contrary forces that are found uh, in reality the forces of creation, forces of destruction, and all of the contrary forces that human beings uh, experience in, in their everyday lives, whether it's in the ancient way or the contemporary way. And not an easy task, not, uh, and, and demands strength, demands faith, demands all kinds of things that we really, uh, I, I don't think, possess today. And, and so as chief, what kinds of things are you expected to do? There are practical family responsibilities. Uh, For example, my brother uh, married a woman who uh, brought a child into the marriage. And the child um, was not uh, connected to the father. And so in order to make a meaningful connection for that child, we performed a ceremony of adoption uh, using our songs, using our rituals. And as a result... Uh, that uh, child became a very responsible member and continues to this day to be a responsible member of our community, holding responsible positions. As a matter of fact, surpassing many of my blood relatives in terms of commitment, um, responsibility, uh, and so on. Uh, so um, the responsibility of a chief then is to, is to provide the, the context, the, the, the framework uh, for certain kinds of issues that may arise, a framework in which to resolve issues uh, that may arise in a community, such as uh, an issue of identity for, for this particular child. Um, we, we provide a framework for marriage ceremonies, uh, for, um, for international agreements with fish farms, uh, for, um, for treaty negotiations. Uh, the treaty negotiations being conducted are conducted in our name, so while we may not be directly hands-on involved in the treaty, it is done in our name. Yeah, I'm thinking of the modern, uh, you know, North American culture. Uh, my parents live in Chicago. My mother's family is in Miami and Cuba. My dad's family is in Chicago and California. Here I'm living in the Seattle area. So we understand that uh, in, the, in the quote-unquote dominant culture, this is, this is normal. But you live a thousand miles away from home, roughly. So you're still able to conduct business in that way. Well, uh, first I want to address the issue of uh, what was called diaspora today during our discussions. Uh, We have a diaspora uh, that 
is created by conditions of colonization, by the conditions of constitutionalism within Canada uh, that uh, created reserves and created certain conditions that in order for anyone that uh, became successful in school to be able to put their success to practical use, uh, they, they had to leave the community because there was no work on, uh, on in, within our communities. Uh, there were massive kinds of restrictions to our people uh, over the most of the 20th century, uh, for some of which were not uh, allowed to move without permission, and for most of which were not allowed to, um, to get loans. Uh, our reserves were special areas where uh, they had no real commercial value. We couldn't use our, our lands for, for commercial purposes uh, until recently. Uh, and so the, uh, with all these restrictions, it, it, was, it was just not reasonable for, uh, if, if we wanted to make a life of any kind, we had to leave, go to the cities and places of employment. And so our people are scattered. But we, uh, traditionally, we had a concept of what we call which means outside and inside. Uh, literally, in the modern terminology, we'd call them summer homes and winter homes. And so now I've extended that concept to the diaspora. In Winnipeg, I am tla'a, I am outside. And when I go home, uh, I am back, hilstis, back home in the interior. And so <clears throat> I want to maintain that sense of connection because uh, through email, through modern technology, distance is really not that relevant in terms of communication. So we watch our, our children and relatives on the, uh, on the screen on the, uh, through the... Uh, you know, through modern technology, you can talk to them and watch them on the screen, on the, on the computer screen. Yeah, and with indigenous technologies, non-locality is, is the, the concept uh, anyway, isn't it? No, yes. So. Yes, that's true. I understand you were the first Aboriginal man to earn a doctorate in British Columbia. What was that like? Most amazing. When it came time to graduate, uh, the dean who was uh, making the announcement forgot that he was supposed to make this kind of announcement. So I passed through and was uh, sort of knighted by the president of the university. And then when I returned to the audience, there were several thousand of us graduating from UBC. Uh, he said, I forgot. And so he had me stand up again and announce that I was the first Aboriginal in British Columbia. I often was congratulated uh, for that, uh, but it, it was very much a mixed blessing because uh, in, in the 1930s, uh, all the students in grade 8 took the same examination. The highest score uh, in the 1930s in that one year was a gentleman from my reserve. Uh, and he was not allowed to go to high school. I use that particular example, a true story, uh, because I, graduating in the late 1980s with a doctorate degree, the first one in British Columbia, was, was actually a disgrace. Uh, it was actually, it, it marked a tremendous loss to British Columbia, Canada, and the world, that so many talented people were not allowed to express, not allowed to fulfill themselves, not allowed to, to uh, the, their intelligence, the, rain, the free reign, to, to perform as, as they could have quite easily. There's a black mark on the province. Yes, that's, that's one way to look at it, yes. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I'm wondering if having a foot in each world uh, then opened you up to grief from um, some of the elders in your village. Opened up to? Well, uh, there's a story in your book about uh, how uh, you were talking in your uh, uh, given tongue, your native language, and someone said, you sound like a white man. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, the process of Western education uh, changed the cadence of my, 
of my original language. And it was like putting it on fast forward, I suppose, because it, it sounded funny to, to um, my, my relatives. And uh, that was quite a shock for me because I was 13, I remember I was 13 years old when it first happened. I was speaking my language and my aunt said, uh, in my language, she said, he sounds like a white person talking. And uh, that cut me to the heart. <laughs> she didn't realize it, of course. She didn't mean any harm either, you know, but it was just an observation. And, uh, but it was a cutting observation. And, uh, Has it been difficult to uh, be uh, equally conversant in both worlds? You're, you have a doctorate in, you know, so the dominant culture, and yet, obviously, this book of research on your own culture is amazing. So you, you're a historian and researcher of your own culture, so you, you have a foot equally in both worlds. Has this given you grief in, uh, in, in your homeland for uh, these, this, I guess, catering to the white man's ways, to put it bluntly? I th- Yes, I, I, I think there's, there's bound to be some misunderstanding and some misgivings. On the one hand, uh, our responsible leaders, elders, uh, parents in the community, they've always encouraged their children to get an education uh, th- all throughout the 20th century. Uh, uh, but on the other hand, uh, we, we have this oppression, we had this oppression, we had the differences. Um, and when a person did be, become successful, there was some resentment of that in the community. And so, so there's some um, uh, put down of anyone that with a PhD, anyone with a doctorate degree. Um, and, and so there's some inconsistency there, which is uh, actually quite natural. It's, it's, uh, I see it as being very natural. And it will take time for the transition to take place before um, people are able to recognize the value in a Western education. Uh, it isn't a complete education in my view, but it's a very valuable form. It's a necessary kind of education because that's the, uh, the Western education, the technology, the science, that is our contemporary and very necessary environment that we need to orient ourselves to without losing our own identity, and that's the challenge. Yeah. Talking with Dr. E. Richard Atlio, he is the author of Sawak, A New Chattanooga Worldview. It's uh, a book that uh, has recently been published by uh, paperback by UBC Press. I'm Paul Nelson. Uh, your great-grandfather Kista, as I understand, uh, the last of the old-time whalers. Quite a process involved in capturing a whale at that time. Can you tell us about what time? That was, what, about 125 years ago? Is that accurate? Yes, uh, s- somewhere in that neighborhood. Uh, we don't really know for certain, except it was a latter part of the 19th century. And he being born <clears throat> circa 1860, and nobody really knows exactly when he was born either. Uh, but uh, P- elders remember him as being rather old at the turn of the century. Uh, not really old, but uh, he was a, quite a mature man. And settlement did not really seriously take place uh, in our part of the world until the turn of the century when uh, missionaries, be- uh, people began to bring um, livestock and so on uh, out to the coast and, and build their homes there. And, and even then, it was several decades before the full impact of uh, civilization began to erode our way of life. <clears throat> Kista, uh, then having lived uh, his adult life, growing up and, and heading a house into which I was born, lived as the way of his ancestors did and taught me those same ways so that in the beginning uh, as a three-year-old 
or four-year-old child, I, I would have to tapswis, which is simply the beginning of training for usumch. Uh, and as a small child then before breakfast, uh, made to run down to the beach and dive in the ocean and come back. Uh, and that, that was it. That was tapswis, but very important uh, uh, initial training process. Tista himself, as a whaler, <coughs> uh, would practice uh, what we've called usumch, uh, which, which I have called a, a knowledge acquisition methodology, that is, a method to acquire knowledge, a method to access knowledge from the spiritual realm. And so for that purpose, he would uh, isolate himself for long periods of time and fast and pray and deny himself uh, the physical pleasures of the world in order to focus on the spiritual, spiritual concerns that he had, assuming that... Uh, the spiritual dimension uh, had power, had knowledge, uh, had um, treasures that uh, he could access through a correct methodology. Now, science, uh, the fundamental requirement in successful scientific experimentation, the classical form was neutrality. Uh, scientists attempted to be neutral in their observations so as not to bias the information that... Uh, you're talking about being objective. Being objective, exactly. Now, of course, this has been challenged by feminist uh, theory, and rightly so. Uh, however, uh, there's a lot of uh, credence to, to the classic. Uh, the classical form of research cre uh, cre created this technology and continues uh, to create a no marvelous technology. So uh, it, it has uh, served uh, um, classical science and, and scientific methodology uh, 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 is, is very legitimate. Uh, I sometimes find difficulty uh, because I'm thinking in the channel and, and then it, it gets in the way. Usumch is also a methodology and, and uh, when it's practiced, the, the critical uh, stance in Usumch, according to our origin stories, this is the, what I call the insignificant leaf approach, according to one of our stories, where the swelled-headed approach of Son of Raven uh, was unsuccessful in accessing the resource. But uh, when he became an insignificant leaf, he was swallowed by the daughter of the great chief who owned the resources, and she became, there was an immaculate conception, and she became pregnant. And so Son of Raven became then an inheritor of the resources owned by the chief, and that's how we got the light. Uh, so humility, then, is the proper stance in Usumch. Uh, just as objectivity is the proper stand in science. Now, if we merge the two together and make a more complete knowledge acquisition system, scientists will have to buy into the humility, <laughs> humility aspect because without humility, there is no seeing in the spiritual realm. You cannot access. Uh, our stories are very plain that if you attempt you know, to, to access information or any, any kind of resource from the spiritual domain, how do not get the information you want? That's one way to narrow the field. <laughs> uh, but your great-grandfather, and you, when you talk about Usumich, this is uh, likened to a vision quest. Yes, yes. Uh, uh, the word Usumich uh, has in it the root, U, which means uh, be careful. Uh, and so... Uh, it's based on the view of reality that uh, perceives it as, as along a spectrum which might be divided in two. Um, on the one side, 
the, we might call it the dark, evil, destructive aspect of reality, and the other side, the beautiful, the creative, uh, the, the glorious, the harmonious, the balance, uh, all of those things that, that can describe Kwa'ut, owner of reality. And, and for some reason, uh, creation, the design of creation is such that we don't understand why uh, reality is this way. But we accept it and we embrace it. And so we create ceremonies and we create teachings to manage this reality as we perceive it through usumch. Cannot perceive this reality uh, uh, with our physical eyes, any, but more with our spiritual eyes through, through usumch. Physical eyes, of course, will corroborate uh, what we see through the spiritual realm. But uh, the spiritual realm will give you a greater kind of, uh, of um, certainty about the nature of reality than the physical realm. I know that empiricists you know, will abhor this kind of statement, but... That, that's something we definitely have to follow up on before the interview yes. is over. I, I do want to follow up on this notion uh, of um, how you, you don't necessarily think it's a great thing, but you realize it, it is the way it is, and you, and you deal with it. For example, uh, in... Uh, in uh, Neuchaltenelth, the word for love includes the experience of pain. So right from the beginning, I mean, it's that pop song, you only hurt the one you love. Well, this is old news to you guys. <laughs> yes, very, very interesting. Um, I must explain that personally, I did not understand these concepts uh, initially. I, I, I was not able to, to analyze these words and take them apart. Uh, quite interestingly enough, it was after I had learned how to do that through the Western education system, that I was able to take uh, Ya'akmis, which is our word for love, and discover that it was the same word for pain. And when I spoke these at uh, a conference of where elders were, were present, they immediately could see that it was, uh, it was such wonder in their eyes, such affirmation in their bodies and body language. Yes, and uh, they were speechless. With wonder, it was a revelation for them. Revelation, exactly. Where, yes. Whereas I see the ladies in the audience now nodding their heads, saying, <laughs> "Yes, I know what that's all about." That's not a surprise to me. Well, there's an, there's another word in your language, and that is uh, the title of the book is Sawak. How would you define Sawak? Sawak uh, literally, in our language, means one. Sawak atla katsamu one two three four. Sawak means one. And initially, um, when I developed uh, the a theoretical concept around that. It was initially a theory of context because I perceived uh, in my research uh, at the university that every variable I examined had a context of conditions attached to that variable. And but, so that was the, the beginning. And with, in discussion with um, my professors, some of them also had the same kind of ideas. They, they, in education, they examined uh, conditions um, a student uh, w would uh, be found in a certain set of conditions uh, in the school. And so they examined those conditions. Or at home, they examined those conditions. So there were a set of uh, identifiable uh, con uh, contexts that uh, uh, scientific research could be conducted in. A and uh, over time, uh, I realized that, uh, that the word context uh, is very useful in smaller situations, uh, needed one that was more inclusive of reality. And so uh, I deliberately chose the Nochanot word 
because it uh, Shalom word has, doesn't doesn't it doesn't come loaded with uh, preconceptions, and so then I could define it as 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 I saw fit, and of course that's one of the prerogatives of academics is to do that is to coin a word and then define it. And so it's inclusive then of spiritual and physical dimensions of reality as we perceive it, and spiritual being uh, being the preeminent uh, dimension of reality upon which the physical depends and has all kinds of implications. <laughs> I was I was just going to say the the interconnected nature of all reality that might be a good definition for Tzawa. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Unlike Western culture, which suggests if you can't measure or see something, uh, it is not real, the theory of Sawak assumes a spiritual primacy of existence. Mm-hmm. So things start from that realm, and everything in the physical realm, which we can touch or we can smell or we can feel or taste, these are a mere shadow of what begins in the spiritual realm. Is that accurate? I would, no, I would like to uh, sort of back up, um, because so far we've been talking... Uh, about uh, the neutral worldview as uh, as as rather proven kind of uh, states of existence, and I really didn't want to give that impression. I, I really wanted to when I wrote the book. Uh, I wrote the book as a propositional um, from a propositional point of view. That is, <clears throat> uh, when when I, I spoke about generosity, for example. Um, I didn't want to present it. Uh, I wanted to say that from a child perspective, it is a law. But when we move it into the research area, uh, I, I want to present it as a proposition, that uh, it must remain a proposition because it, um, evidence from oral cultures, uh, according to any definition uh, of, uh, from, from a scientific perspective, is not acceptable. Right? Uh, so... I would like, uh, uh, I am certain, uh, I am very confident that the data, the information uh, that uh, are my ancestors, the legacy of my ancestors, the information that they produced, the, the data that they produced, the belief system that they have, uh, can be subjected to credible, authentic, legitimate forms of research methodologies that scientists can recognize and approve of. Yeah. Once they understand we're, what we're trying to do, that if we subject it to authentic research, that uh, some solid uh, affirmation of data can be found, uh, fact can be found, or, or credence can be given to to information provided by uh, uh, acceptable uh, research methodologies. <coughs> well, let me go to uh, then Newtonian science for a moment the one that's that uh, allegedly has been validated through double blind placebo studies or what have you uh, and and not just that science but what gives it credence you quote thomas hobbes in the book a uh, famous quote about life for indigenous people being nasty brutish and short that's a paraphrase uh, though his scientific modalities would be in question by any decent scientist he's been allowed to shape attitudes towards indigenous peoples and also to shape laws for hundreds of years. Would you like to elaborate on that? Well, uh, that um, the quotation um, about Hobbes uh, 
was there because a Supreme Court judge in British Columbia uh, used Hobbes as evidence. Uh, one of the peculiarities of the Western culture is that if someone writes a book or, or writes a paper and it gets into a publication, and then over 100 years, uh, something happens to, 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 to that writing. It suddenly becomes hallowed. You know, it, it takes on an authenticity uh, th that it doesn't deserve. Uh, because it was written 200 years ago, because it was written 300 years ago. Um, and, and that's an observation that I make. Um, <clears throat> uh, Shakespeare uh, is literally an icon in, in all literatures. Uh, but uh, if we really examine Shakespeare, what did he write about? You know, and and we, uh, I've never seen Shakespeare critiqued. Uh, in a negative way. It's always been critiqued in a positive way. <laughs> you haven't talked to some of the poets I know, but that's <laughs> okay. another, I mean, in terms of his poetry. Oh, okay, not sorry. Writing. Yeah, <laughs> right. Okay, I should really stick to the subject here. Well, no, uh, but, but yeah. Hobbes, mm -hmm. I mean, he's making this, and it's being quoted by, uh, by a, a Supreme Court justice in Canada, and yet uh, when you look at the scientific modality uh, that, uh, of some of his contemporaries, for example, the early explorers and their scientific research was a lot more credible than what Hobbes was quoting. Well, um, what Hobbes and Jean-Jacques Rousseau and John Locke, what, what they, they did at their time was acceptable. And it's very much like armchair, armchair quarterbacking. That is, um, they wrote down suppositions uh, using uh, logic, using their own logic. And so uh, they, because, because they, had, they had access to the theory of evolution, that um, uh, existence on the planet uh, developed uh, along an imaginary line called called um, uh, an evolutionary evolutionary line, and on this line, the most advanced species were the Europeans, and, and uh, so they imagined that other species would be less advanced uh, because uh, they they were not like them, and so they assumed that Aboriginals uh, were were uh, more primitive along this evolutionary in this evolutionary process and to the point where they uh, had no laws uh, they had no uh, organized societies and they were instinctive rather than uh, you know intelligent and, and that's where, and th and they did not go and check uh, their thoughts they uh, they they used their logic and applied the logic to their writings their, their writings are very logical but flawed seriously flawed but that kind of work was acceptable at that time. And uh, I think what's often forgotten, uh, in, uh, these people are still studied in political science. And so people that take political science learn incidentally about, about the primitiveness of aboriginals. Right? And, and there's, there's no, uh, there's no um, uh, balancing of the perception of individuals in those texts. Uh, th there isn't another text that says, well, you know, Hobbes had no evidence. Jean-Jacques Rousseau had no, no empirical evidence for the ideas that he propagated about aboriginals. He could have very well been throwing darts at a dartboard that he filled out and, had, and come up with similar results. We're talking with Dr. E. Richard Antlio. He is the author of Sawak, a new Chotinel worldview. Cascadian Prophet supporters include Diana Elser, a sponsorship dedicated to her parents whose practicality, humor, and love of family life reflected their experience in and love for the eastern Missouri Breaks and western Ruby Valley Montana landscapes that define their childhoods. And Steinbrook Native Gallery, located near Pike Place Market in downtown Seattle, 
featuring fine art of the Northwest Coast from emerging and established artists. A link to their site at CascadianProfits.org. When we talk about these uh, statements created by these these opinions shaped by uh, people like Thomas Hobbes and his contemporaries, uh, it might be, you know, we could shake our heads or say that's bad science or do whatever, but the limitations of uh, their view have really um, affected the life and well-being of indigenous people for 300, 400 years. Yes, that, that's true. And it's my um, belief, contention, that uh, these academics, they were academics of their day, were... Uh, largely responsible for uh, much of the... Uh, theirs weren't the only belief systems, by the way. There's, uh, there, there was other information that was available about aboriginals that was good information. Uh, it's little known that, uh, I think it was in the 16th century, a royal commission was, uh, um, was, was done that found that aboriginals uh, were indeed people, that they had organized societies and, and so on, that they were... that that they should be dealt with as, as people should be dealt with anywhere. That the chief of uh, these peoples was uh, sort of served a role of high priest as well as leader, as well as political leader. Yes, that, that was uh, observation by um, Mozinho, uh, a Spanish uh, explorer that came up the coast and conversed with Makuna and made observations about the society of the day. It was rather complex. Yes, yes. Uh, well, uh, Mozinho's observations uh, were um, provided uh, uh, sort of tip-of-the-iceberg type of um, observations about our society. Not complete. There was some, um, some misunderstanding uh, um, provided as well, but that, that's quite... Uh, he was not a trained, uh, trained observer. I mean, most of, many of the people that came made observations were not trained observers. He, he got it pretty pretty well, don't you think? Yes, he, yes, he did. He did very well. As a matter of fact, I will have to concede that, yes. Um, now, uh, information about, about our societies and about, uh, are, are, have often been subjected to misinterpretation. So you can take the same sort of event, and if you interpret it from a, a scientific worldview perspective... Uh, that event comes out very poorly. For example, if I say, tell us about Snot Boy, you <laughs> yeah. immediately have a exactly. problem with that. Okay. As well as Wolf Ritual, yes. Right, right, right. Yes, uh, exactly. They, um, we should be talking about Son of Mucus is what I'm, is what I'm uh, referring exactly, to. Exactly, yes. Uh, f- uh, for example, um, an observation was made in, in a contemporary text about Nootkin Whaling. Nootkin Whaling, they called it. And I, I, I did a review of the book. And uh, there's a statement in there that's, that's intended to be neutral. And the statement was, many whaling ventures were unsuccessful and, and left, um, that, it was just left that way. Uh, many whaling ventures uh, uh, were unsuccessful. And that was rather the dominant uh, um, description of, of, the whaling, of the whaling aspect of our people. It would be very much uh, like saying, um, Alexander Graham Bell had uh, uh, 1,236 failures uh, uh, during his experimentation, and, and, and you failed to mention that. By the way, he did also <laughs> do this thing on the telephone. We'll tell you about that later. Exactly, right, exactly. Right. Well, you know, you know I'm, I'm looking at that part of the world, Clackwatt Sound, and thinking that, uh, you know, the 
the Indians on the east coast of North America tremendously devastated. And as you get further west, there were, the devastation continued. But I'm I'm guessing that we get up here to the northwest and uh, uh, and uh, it's not as bad as it was. Not complete devastation. There's still there's still remnants. Some cultures have survived. And I'm thinking, is there is it because of your area that you were able to um, avoid some of the worst uh, brunts of colonialism? No, that's uh, not. Uh, that would be not be our interpretation. Uh, the, the the worst uh, swept the entire continent from coast to coast. Uh, the diseases uh, decimated our populations uh, to to a horrendous degree. Right? Uh, during the residential schools, uh, it, it has not been really publicized, and only recently has information uh, surfaced that. Um, uh, we have testimony from people that were recently alive and some that are still alive where TB was deliberately spread amongst our students. Uh, people were, were made to sleep with uh, an infected TB uh, person. Uh, there, were, uh, there were girls that uh, where abortion was committed and the girls died as a result of the abortion because of the, because the, uh, at that time the abortion, they didn't know much about how to do abortions, I suppose. But um, uh, and there were there were a lot of deaths that took place in residential schools uh, that that were never reported, that were kept quiet. As a matter of fact, I read across the country. Uh, that's that's one of that's a recent uh, kind of information. Um, but the devastation to uh, to our community. Uh, one, one of the uh, anti very significant anthropologists in Canada has made the statement that the banning of the potlatch was not significant. Uh, I find that a horrendous statement for uh, a person who didn't live, who was not an Aboriginal, uh, a very respected anthropologist, is a good example of how misunderstandings continue to the present day. Uh, many of the deaths uh, in my own community, uh, I would attribute to the, to the banning of the potlatch, to, to the laws that were created in Canada, uh, that were placed in the Constitution of Canada. So all the powers of the state brought to bear uh, against my people. I think my grandfather, uh, perished as a, as did my father as a result uh, of these laws that that disempowered um, the the chiefs uh, the, the people who governed our communities who maintained order in our communities and, and when they were disempowered then chaos uh, naturally came in like a flood and will every time you you loose every time you relax uh, because our teaching was you must be vigilant. You must always, uh, so the rule of law, as in the West they say, the rule of law was always uh, very strongly upheld in our communities through the Tukwana, through teachings, through songs and dances, and so on. And when that was relaxed, as soon as the, the relaxed, on the, then the destructive forces came, came in like a tsunami flood. And so we, so, uh, we have all of the, uh, what research has shown us today, the highest incidence of every dysfunction, including death. Uh, in our communities. The, so no, no part of the continent uh, escaped uh, uh, the, you know, the massive brunt, destructive brunt of colonization. After September 11th, the United States, uh, we forget about it now, but there was a huge uh, spread of, or fear of anthrax. And I'm wondering uh, if you think that um, the 
perpetration of biological warfare against indigenous peoples is somewhere in the back of the consciousness or somewhere in the unconscious of uh, American people, and that's why there's the anthrax uh, thing scares them so much. Because Very much so. The distribution, uh, deliberate distribution of blankets as gifts that were blankets that were infected with disease, uh, smallpox, and decimating entire, it's biological warfare against indigenous people that was perpetrated over the last uh, 200 years or more. Yet in Canada, um, there's been some progress uh, politically. Uh, 1997, a Canadian Supreme Court decision which made oral histories legitimate evidence in the eyes of Canadian law. A huge advance, would you agree? Yes, that was uh, called the Delgamook uh, decision. And what was very interesting about that decision uh, is that it affirmed Aboriginal rights and title and, uh, and accepted oral histories uh, as evidence in the court of law. Um, and that's a landmark decision. However, uh, the fact that uh, oral histories are accepted in court as evidence does not mean, of course, that uh, when we Aboriginals present our oral histories that they will be accepted verbatim as fact, because they are not. They will be treated in the same way that any other kind of evidence. Uh, is it credible? And of course, uh, uh, at the moment, at this moment, uh, most of oral histories are, are, are not deemed credible from the Western perspective. And so we need a lot of work to do yet in, in that area. The other thing is that uh, the recognition of Aboriginal title and rights in Canada is a principle and the interpretation of which is still to be done. Right? So that what does it mean to be Nochonald uh, for the Ahousad people? What, is it, what does it mean? What does Aboriginal rights and title mean for us? Uh, the Supreme Court of Canada uh, has not defined the specifics uh, of that. And so that work uh, is very much a moot point still. It, it's, it's, a, it's a point of negotiation. So we sit at the treaty table. And, uh, and so it's a, it's a struggle where we are at a disadvantage because uh, we're, on, we're on their playground. <laughs> we're in their playground. And, and they're gradually accepting some of our ways. But predominantly, the rules uh, of, of the game are their rules. Still going in the right direction. Thank you. Yeah. I remember being in Canada, I think, when Paul Martin was being sworn in as prime minister and was watching him uh, be smudged by a native elder. So to see to just picture President Bush allowing that to happen to me is inconceivable. So it would it would then I would then argue that the Canadian Aboriginal people uh, have a leg up on their contemporaries or their counterparts. That would here. appear to be so. However, uh, I, I think a, a, a good deal of skepticism always is 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 warranted when uh, observing the behavior of politicians. <laughs> uh, uh, no matter what Prime kind of... Uh, <laughs> you, should know, you should know and understand that the Prime Minister of Canada is, a, is leading uh, a minority party. Uh, he, has a, he has a minority in government, he, and, and so uh, he must woo as many people, uh, groups as possible. And, and so being smudged, then uh, he hopes to, to garner as many Aboriginal votes in Canada as possible. So you you say it's a pure political act. Huh? <laughs> uh, we, we won't have to put you on the spot regarding <laughs> politics. Uh, can you elaborate on why you say in the book that the experiment with colonialism is over and it has been a failure? Yes, uh, that that is one, uh, one perspective. A successful colonial experiment uh, would have meant the disappearance of, uh, of any culture other than the cultures that were that came over to this continent. Uh, the fact that uh, they were unable to, 
uh, to do that. The, the actual word that was used by a Jesuit missionary in 1632 was, was extirpate. We must extirpate in the educational process all of the thoughts, habits, and feelings of Aboriginal children and inculcate right, uh, the Western, uh, the, <coughs> the European um, thoughts, habits, and feelings. And of course, at that time, it was thought to be a kindness. That was thought because on the evolutionary scale, we're the most advanced. If we make them like us, then that's a kindness that we perform towards them. Uh, so uh, uh, in either way, it, it, it would mean the disappearance uh, of Aboriginal people uh, and Aboriginal identity as we know it. it uh, because we retain our identity, because we retain our songs and dances, because I am umik, uh, uh, it's been a failure to that extent. To the extent that, um, that we have been destroyed and many of our ways have been forgotten, it's, it's been successful to that. So it's a mixed, uh, it, it isn't a complete uh, failure. Uh, but uh, in, in important ways, uh, it's been a great um, test for, for a way of life that uh, if, it, if it was not authentic, uh, if, if it did not have legitimacy in, in, the, in, the, in the dimensions of reality that I speak of, that is the spiritual and physical dimensions, then uh, the existence of it would have been jeopardized and, and may have gone out of existence. But because uh, it, it is legitimate, because it is authentic, uh, because uh, the existence of it is, is actually not completely controlled by the human being, right? that there are greater powers involved here that... that uh, allowed us to continue as we are, and for that we are grateful and thankful. We're talking about the realm of the spiritual, and uh, in your culture you say spiritual experiences are necessary for an effective management of reality. Uh, yes, uh, I, I think that <clears throat> this is where uh, the, the perspective of Aboriginals, Indigenous peoples, uh, with, with, uh, with a reputation for spirituality, uh, I think it, it, will in the future be a necessary complement to the survival of the human being. Uh, I think science, uh, with its great wonders and powers as a technological advancement tool, uh, serves uh, to provide certain uh, necessities for the human being, but none of the, uh, none of the values that, that are necessary for, for survival on this planet. And I, I think that values can be derived uh, the authenticity, the legitimacy of values uh, uh, can be derived not from ideologies but from, uh, from spiritual quests where human beings can relearn or remember, in fact, what uh, was always the legacy of the human being, that uh, the, uh, the human being has a legacy in the spiritual realm that uh, uh, many communities have forgotten. That, but if they strive to remember, they can, uh, and they can have access to that same kind of information that our ancestors were privy to. And they did not always manage successfully, but most of the time they were able to do so. If they strive to remember and if they're humble, which is an important part of it. Yes, and that can be a difficult task for many of us. Mm -hmm. You say uh, to the New Chatnoth uh, people that generosity is not just a good trait, but is actually a law. It's uh, akin to gravity, G I, generosity. I find it ex exciting that, uh, that uh, I think it's possible to subject 
some, some of the statements that I make in the book to, uh, to an investigation. Uh, some investigations have already been conducted about prayer, for example, where people will pray, uh, the double-blind experiment kind of thing, where uh, people will pray specifically in one way for a plant, in a creative way, and destructively for another plant. And watch what happens to those plants. Uh, where one will shrivel and die and the other will blossom. Or even right. a, a dish of bacteria. They a prefer. dish of bacteria, yeah. yes, yes. And there are other kinds of experimentation that can be done that are very pragmatic, such as the analysis of brain chemistry, um, the analysis of what happens in the brain. And I know that, relatively speaking, very little is still known about our brains. There's still a lot more research to be done. But nevertheless, a great deal of information is already known. And so what can be done is to analyze brain chemistry uh, while in a state, certain states of uh, conditions that can be identified as spiritual. And there can be uh, groups of people that, that can participate in this kind of experimentation. And when it's replicated over and over again, uh, when, when it's very rigorous from a scientific perspective, uh, a lot of things can be learned about um, a relationship between the physical and spiritual realm. Things that we learned uh, as nocturnal people over millennia and proved and, and, de and designed our life ways, our communities, our governance system, our management of, of resources uh, from the findings of, uh, of Usumch. I would uh, love for you to paint us a mental picture. How would something like um, generosity, for example, be proven to be something that is necessary for good health and well-being, and how would one do that using the Vision Quest process? There, there were uh, different kinds of research. Um, th there's, um, uh, I, I forgot the, the, the technical name, quasi um, well, never mind. Uh, there's, there's research where you look back and, and, and you examine um, data, uh, historical, historical data, uh, the experiences of people that can testify uh, uh, about certain outcomes from spiritual activity. The activity of uh, generosity, for example, I, w I would classify as a spiritual activity. And so, uh, so one can interview uh, any thousands of families of people who practice generosity. Uh, and probably would have to be a lot of uh, indigenous peoples, maybe a lot of Christian people, or may, uh, those religions that have generosity as part of their teachings. Examine those people, you know, and, and of course, uh, not examining the religion, just re examining the practice. And, and the experience of the people. And, and, and the experience. So that's one kind of study. The, uh, another kind of study would be to, to have people participate uh, uh, willingly, uh, as they, they do in many other kinds of experimentation. And, and even people, for example, uh, that, that aren't in the habit of, of giving may, may want to participate in this and to test this, this uh, proposition that generosity always works, that generosity never fails. It never has failed uh, a people that were managed to survive in spite of famine in spite of all kinds of problems that, that crop up naturally in existence, uh, but did not deter them from, from, this, uh, from this law that we call generosity. So uh, one can then do a long-term, so long-term kind of research uh, in this way and, and test the, the results. Okay, uh, did you suffer? You know, or what degree did you suffer as a result of giving? Uh, or did you benefit from it? And so you will find, uh, I, I'm certain, that, for example, e even in uh, monetary uh, funds, if, 
if uh, some people in Christian societies give 10% of their earnings, and some with greater faith will give a larger percentage, up to 75%. Can you believe it? You give 75% of your money away regularly, and, uh, and not only uh, uh, do you maintain your, your, your but uh, your wealth increases as a result. It's interesting, on page 123, you have a long list of potential things that could be uh, uh, researched. Do some spiritual experiences require more effort than others? Under what conditions are creative spiritual forces stronger than destructive forces, and so on and so forth? It's a great passage, and if we had more time, I'd ask you to read that. How does a song lose its power away from the place where it came from? In other words, it, it, how much power would one of your healing songs in, in your territory have in South America or Europe? Hmm. A song, well, uh, songs are products uh, of the environment in, in, in which they are created. And, and so uh, they think their energy, then their power uh, within that context. And when you take anything out of context, uh, then it is uh, often disempowered. So uh, secret knowledge, uh, for example, when, uh, when uh, something is meant to be secret and then uh, it, uh, it is divulged, uh, then it loses its power. It, it, and that is a principle that was learned uh, in our societies. There are some things that are meant to be secret. And when, when they are exposed, then they lose their, their power. They, they are disempowered. So um, when... Uh, some people talked about our Klukwana ceremony then, uh, the, the, the elements of it were misinterpreted uh, because they were placed in a scientific context. They were placed in a different worldview context. They were placed in, in an environment where they could not live. The Klukwana could not survive in that environment. It thrives in an eternal environment. It's dynamic, and, and one can see wonders. And we, lately we have in the performance of a Klukwana, experienced wonders, just as our ancestors did. One last question. Is the environmental crisis we find the Earth in with global warming and constant war and shootings here in the United States, another school shooting recently, is this simply the maturation of a phase? Uh, um, I'm not sure simply. Uh, it, it would appear to be simple, um, but uh, I... I think that is a much more complex uh, phenomenon we're observing. Um, but certainly, <clears throat> the abuse of an environment, uh, when, what we understand about cycles, that uh, when we send out uh, um, good, we receive good. When we send out bad, we receive bad. Uh, whatever cycle we begin, uh, you know, that, that it just goes around. Uh, so what goes around comes around, I think, is a street phrase that, that's very apt for an Aboriginal perspective. And the mountains and the, the and nature will get the last word. I, the mountains and nature will get the last word, yes. <laughs> it's been a delight to have you on the program. Thank, Thank you, you so much, much for your yes, great work here and um, continued success. Thank you. We've been talking with Umik, Dr. E. Richard Atlio. His new book is Sawak, A Kinu Cha North Worldview. And you can find that uh, paperback version on UBC Press. Cascadian Profit supporters include Diana Elser, a sponsorship dedicated to her parents whose practicality, humor, and love of family life reflected their experience in and love for the eastern Missouri Breaks and western Ruby Valley Montana landscapes that define their childhoods. And Steinbrook Native Gallery, 
located near Pike Place Market in downtown Seattle, featuring fine art of the Northwest Coast from emerging and established artists. A link to their site at cascadianprofits.org.